As you've heard, today is Pentecost Sunday. It is often also called Whit Sunday, White Sunday, in honor of those who are dressed in white for their baptisms. But for us, at least for many of us, today does not feel like a day of joy. And the last lines of the gospel, at least for me, are hard to swallow. When Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Just a few days ago, not far from here, the shooting that took place took the lives of four innocents and the killer himself. Harmed a few others, we don't know how many. I don't, at least, know how many. And of course, created a ripple effect of trauma that reaches much farther than we can imagine. And of course, all of you know, or assuming all of you know that that is just one of many such instances that have happened over the last decade. We were still reeling from what had happened in Buffalo and Uvalde, and then it happened here, and since it's happened here, it's happened many other places, including Philadelphia last night. And that's just one instance, one style, one register of violence. There's always been trouble. The book of Job opens again and again that line, man is a few days and full of trouble. As long as there have been human beings, there has been trauma, there's been betrayal and brokenness, there's been violence, there's been murder, there's been corruption. But we're living now and we're living here And we're bearing the weight of it, I think, in a peculiar way, in part because many of us have been called to be Christian and we've been given a Christianity that doesn't quite know how to square itself with the brokenness of the world. And I think, I'm painting in broad strokes here, but I think in general, we've been Christianized in one of two ways, poorly. One is we've been taught to think magically about the brokenness of the world. And we've been taught that God will rescue us from what will happen to others who do not have God. God will keep us safe, but others will have to endure it. Of course, that isn't true. But even if it were true, it would be wrong to want it. Even if that were possible, it would be wrong to want it. I was speaking in this church years and years ago, probably a decade ago, and afterwards someone was talking to me about the fact that I didn't believe strongly enough in the authority of the believer. Now, some of you may not know this about Tulsa, but Tulsa is kind of known as the Mecca, and yes, that is an interreligious joke on purpose, the Mecca of the Word of Faith movement, the, the style of Christianity that insists on the power of the believer to declare the future that she or he wants for himself or herself. And so I had preached a sermon that apparently at least one person found offensive and they confronted me with my lack of belief in the authority of the believer. And I said, well, explain to me what you mean. And he said, well, if a tornado, it was in the aftermath of a tornado, my sermon. The, the, the sermon itself was probably uh, tornadic, <laughs> but be that as it may, He's, I had said something in the sermon about suffering with those who suffered, and he was saying, 
I lacked an account of the authority of the believer. And he said, if a tornado were coming toward my house, I would just stand outside and rebuke it and send it somewhere else. And again, I don't know if this was the Holy Spirit or some alien spirit. I said, I said something to the effect of nothing could be less like Christ than that. Nothing could be less like Christ than having the authority over nature and wielding it so that you are protected and someone else is harmed. Jesus doesn't direct the storm away from himself to destroy others' boats. And so I think there, there are many of us who've been conditioned to think magically, God will protect us, or at least if I have the authority and I exercise my authority, I can guarantee the future I want for myself. That isn't true. It isn't true. And it's also not true that prayer is going to fix what's broken in our society. Magical thinking doesn't work whether you're thinking about yourself or you're thinking about the society at large. But there's, a, there's another way of thinking many of us will have fallen into, if not been directed into it, which is a, a kind of mechanical thinking about the way the world works, and we, we abandon thinking of the way of Jesus when it comes to fixing the world or facing the real brokenness of the world. And so many of us will have been taught that there are things that are spiritual, and that's where God is at work, and then there are things that are political, and then we just kind of have to put all of that God stuff to the side and do what is realistic. And so whether we're thinking magically or we're thinking reali- re- what's the word? realistically, religiously got stuck in my head there for a moment. Thank you. There was, this is tongues and interpretation, see, on, on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> so if, whether we're thinking magically or we're thinking this, this kind of realistically, this real politic way, neither is true to Jesus. Neither is true to the way of Jesus. And part of what we have to recognize is that to become a Christian is not to kind of identify, to fill out the form and say, yes, I'm a Christian, or to raise your hand, or to attend church, although I'm grateful you're here. To become a Christian is to have your whole life conformed fully to the whole life of God. Your entire life shaped entirely into the character and nature of God. Nothing less than that. When God claims you, he claims you to fill fill you with his own life to shape you with his character, to make you become the kind of person in the world that makes God look good. That's who you're called to be. So on this day, in the shadow of what's happened, I want to talk about the mystery of Pentecost and the ways in which the coming of the Spirit alters us so that we do not think magically. We're not expecting God to intervene and make all things right while we stand and watch and applaud. And we do not think realistically. We do not leave the cross to one side and take up whatever weapon we want to get our will done in the world. We think spiritually, capital S. We think Jesusly. We think godly. We think in ways that are true to the mystery of Pentecost. We think Pentecostally. Are you with me so far? So let's talk briefly about a set of texts that the lectionary gives us today. The story of Babel in Genesis 11, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon, what, what comes that sets Peter up for his sermon, and then the gospel we just heard that ends with, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
In 591 in Rome, Pope Gregory the Great preached on Pentecost Sunday. It was June the 3rd that year. He preached a sermon, a, a much longer sermon than I'm going to preach today, probably. We don't know. You never, you never can tell how this is going to work. But he preached a sermon that day from these same texts that we've been given. Now, in the sermon, he doesn't mention this, but part of what's striking about the sermon, when you know the context, is that he has been pope for a little less than a year, and he was made pope because the previous pope died from the plague. And just a few months before, or a few weeks before this sermon that he preached on Pentecost Sunday in 591, he had led a procession through Rome with an icon of Mary that the church believed had been painted by Luke the Evangelist, praying for the plague to stop. And Pope Gregory has a vision of the angel Michael sheathing his sword, which he takes to be a sign that the plague is ending. And then he comes and preaches in St. Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, this sermon. Of course, it's called St. Peter's Basilica because it's built in honor of Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost and then died as Paul did in Rome as a witness to that gospel. And in that sermon, preached 1,430 years ago or so in Rome, Gregory begins by saying this, the coming of the Spirit settles on their bodies as fire and in their hearts as the sweetest love. The fire of God that they see settling on the heads of those who are gathered is a symbol, is a sign of the fire of God that's been kindled in their hearts. And what's been kindled in them, he says, is nothing other than God's own love. God's love for God, the Father's love for the Son, and God's love for us. And because of that sweetest of loves that has been awakened in us by the coming of the Spirit, Gregory says, we are to go out into the world and to love as we have been loved. So here we are, 1,430 years later, in the shadow of our own tragedy, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. And the message is exactly the same. We're preaching the same message today, or I'm trying at least, to preach the exact same message today that Peter delivered in Jerusalem in the beginning, that Gregory delivered in Rome 590 years after that, or 560, and now... 1,430 years later. And we do this in anticipation that 1,400 years from now, somewhere else, someone else will preach this same message. Probably not referencing mine, but... <laughs> and if, if they do, hopefully not as a negative example. Here's where the line of continuity broke. But I, I, I draw attention to that because I want you to feel the weight of the fact that... This message is being passed down. This didn't happen magically. This didn't happen because people just stood back and waited on God to be God. There is a way in which we do have to stand still and see the glory of God, but that can easily be twisted into irresponsibility. To live by faith is not to not work in the world. That's, the gospel is explicit about this. It is to go about our lives letting God's work happen in us. I'll, I'll say more about that when we come to the gospel text in just a moment. 
part of the problem we're up against is we, we don't have a sense of having received this message from others or needing to give it to others. We have to return, the mystery of Pentecost has to return us to a sense of responsibility. That we are answerable. You and I, at least many of us, if not everybody in this room, most of us in this room, are answerable for what happens not only to ourselves and not only to our families, but to everyone in this city, everyone in this world. We're answerable for that. We will give an account for that. And we need to feel the weight of that responsibility and to know that we can't accomplish it in our flesh, but we're not working in the flesh. The Spirit is working in us. That's the mystery of Pentecost, that God has come alive in us. The love of God is sweetening us and transfiguring us, is enlightening us, turning us into flame. As Gregory said in that sermon all those years ago, the Spirit comes and transfigures these carnal persons into the love of God. That's who you're becoming. You're becoming the face, the voice, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not just to those closest to you, but to those chance, those people you meet by chance, and to people you'll never meet. Pentecost traditionally has been celebrated as the birthday of the church, and the church needs to be understood as a community where this way of thinking and feeling and acting and speaking and listening becomes possible. That's neither magical nor realistic. It's hopeful, it's faithful, it's loving, it's Pentecostal. And that, that's the difference. So really quickly, a few notes about these texts, and I'll show you an image, and I'll sit down and shut up. The Genesis 11 text, which I hope you'll read on your own time. I won't take time to read it now. But it's the story of Babel, and strikingly, it's the last story before we get the story of Abraham. And what's happened, if you go back and read it, you'll find that, that human beings are of one language and have all the same words, and they have this recognition, they have this recognition that they need to build, they need to build a city, and at the center of the city, a tower that will enable them to control their future. And what they say is, we must do this. If we do not do this, someone will come and take away our place from us. So the instinct is to build in order to protect their future, in order to preserve themselves. This is what realistic thinking is. Realistic thinking is, if we don't take this matter into our own hands, if we don't do what we have to do, then we won't have a future. And realistic thinking, notice, is thinking that doesn't pray. In the story of the Tower of Babel, they're going to build a temple, they're going to build a tower, they're going to build a city that reaches to heaven, but they never pray. And it's possible to have a religion, a Christianity, newsflash, we're surrounded by this, it's possible to have a Christianity that's rooted in realistic thinking, and so even though it talks about prayer, it doesn't actually pray. Even though it wants prayer in school, it doesn't embody prayer. Even though it wants the Ten Commandments in the courthouse, it doesn't live by the Ten Commandments. Am I getting a little too carried away here? You guys are really, really, really quiet. It can't be a bad thing for me to say we should pray. It's not enough to say you believe in prayer. Pray. We don't, we don't need to try to 
turn America back to God by passing legislation about prayer. We need to become people who are prayers, whose lives are consumed with the love of God. Intercede. Pour your heart out in prayer. Don't take up the weapons of the world in the name of the way of God. They try to build a tower, and God frustrates it. God stops it, not as punishment. This is a side note, but there isn't punishment in the ending of the building of the tower. It's seeding. God scatters them. And the very next thing that happens is, God, one of those seeds springs up into the life of Abraham. God stops the building of the Tower of Babel, not because God is jealous, not because God is offended, not because God is afraid, but because God knows when we build according to knowledge but without wisdom, when we work in the flesh and we try to realize our potentials in order to protect our future, but we don't act out of love for our neighbor and our actions are not rooted in prayer, we will destroy our own humanity. When we are building towers to preserve our future, we are dehumanizing ourselves. We are turning ourselves into slaves of our own work. And you don't need me to draw all those lines of connection. It's possible to have the best of intentions, to be as realistic as you can be, and to do work that actually strips you of who God has called you to be, of who God has called us to be. And so God frustrates that work. God stops it, not to punish us, but to save us from our own achievements. As the prophet Garth Brooks says, thank God for unanswered prayers. (laughs) Thank God for failed projects. And sometimes those projects are not stopped miraculously. We have to learn to walk away from them. And there are some babbles that some of us are building. And this may be true in your life. It's certainly true in our culture at large. We need to stop building that tower. Walk away from it. Become people who are moved to Pentecost. So if you get in Gregory in his sermon in 591, he talks about this, that the Spirit moves us from Babel to the upper room. That in the upper room, they're gathered, waiting. This is what it looks like to be people of faith. Not waiting for God to do something magical, but waiting for God to move us into action. Peter is not waiting on anything magical. He's waiting on the coming of the Spirit, something mystical. And when the Spirit comes, what does Peter do? He stands up and says, this is not what you think it is. This is what the prophet prophesied. This is the coming of the Spirit. This is the beginning of the end. This is what we do as people of faith. Instead of building our own kingdoms, we gather together, rooted in prayer, and we wait for God to ignite in us the words that need to be spoken. That's what it means to be Pentecostal. Now, come to the gospel text. It's, a, it's an odd text. And the irony is not lost on me that we're preaching this in Tulsa. Greater works than these will you do. What does Jesus mean by that? I mean, how can we do greater works than the works of Jesus? Again, you should study this on your own, but pay attention to what he says. Jesus is not saying you will do the works instead of me, but that I will do the works in you and with you. And he's already said, I don't do anything 
The Father who dwells in me does his works. So this is what Jesus is saying. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father in me does his works, and so I work the works of the Father. You are going to be in me as I am in the Father, and I'm going to be in you as the Father is in me. And that means my works, that are the Father's works, are going to be in you. And you will work the works of God as I work the works of God. And when he says, greater works than these will you do, he means not in the sense that we're going to do more miracles than Jesus did numerically, or better miracles, whatever that would mean, but that he will do his work in us. St. Augustine, in another sermon from the ancient world, even earlier than Gregory's, talked about this text, and he says, he draws attention to the ways in which Peter, in Acts, walks by and his shadow heals those who are sick. And Greg. Augustine points out that when Jesus in the Gospels walked by, people would sometimes touch him and be healed. And Augustine said, maybe this is what Jesus is promising, that because Jesus now lives in Peter, even Peter's shadow does what before Jesus' clothes could do, so that God's work in you is the greater that God has been working for. This is the mystery of Pentecost. You become, I become the providence of God. Now, here's where you start to feel the weight of responsibility, and here's what separates it from magical thinking. Magical thinking is, I'm going to figure out the right word to say to make something supernatural happen that gives me the life I want for myself. But hopeful, loving, faithful, Pentecostal thinking is God is going to ignite me so that I feel what God feels and think what God thinks. And I enter with God into the suffering of my neighbor. And out of compassionate intercession for them, God will act. Do you hear the difference? Magical thinking is I have a way, a secret, where I can manage miracles to produce the life I want for myself. Mystical thinking, Pentecostal thinking is God is alive in me. How can I not weep? with those who weep? How can I not rejoice with those who rejoice? How can I not serve as I have been served? To be moved by the spirit of Pentecost is to be moved toward those who are broken, not to be moved away from them. It's to be moved into the heart of the city, not into the outskirts where we separate ourselves, secure ourselves against the threat of the future. We need to think as Peter is thinking on the day of Pentecost. We need to realize Jesus is alive in us and we are becoming the face of the Spirit. That's who you're meant to be. That's who you're meant to be. That's who I'm meant to be. I'm not always that. I'm guessing most of you aren't always that. We need to hear on Pentecost, the world is waiting on us to step into that responsibility. Christian maturity, I think, can be defined as the readiness to do for others what we're waiting on God to do for us. Maturity is doing for others what we're waiting on God to do for us. There is a time in your Christian walk where you get spoon-fed, where you get nursed. But that's not this moment for most of us. 
And we don't need to look at the trauma that's spilling out around us, the horror that's happening, the disease, the corruption, whatever evil it is that you see and feel. We don't need to look at that in despair. We don't need to look at that and resort to some kind of realistic thinking. We don't need to look at that and wash our hands of it and think, well, it doesn't matter because I'm kept safe in the Lord. We need to look at that and realize we're the ones God has planted here to deal with that. But that's going to require a shift in imagination. So I'm going to do two things, and then I'm going to, I am, I promise, going to get out of the way. The first is, anybody even know who Herbie Hancock is? I'm hoping you all do, right? If you don't, if you don't like me when I'm referencing Gregory the Great and Augustine, surely you'll like me when I'm referencing Herbie, the, Herbie Hancock. So I, I watched this week, a friend sent me a link to his lectures called The Ethics of Jazz, and it's like a seven-part series. It's, it's fascinating. I encourage all of you to watch it. Not now. Wait till the service is over. But it's tremendous. And in one of those lectures, I can't remember which one it is, he talks about the ways in which he learned the wisdom of Miles Davis. And this, is, this was in the 60s when he was an up-and-coming musician himself and composer. And he tells two stories I want to relate to you and show you how they relate to us. The first is, he, he was play, at this point, he's playing with Miles Davis. He's in the band. He's the pianist. And they're doing their show one night, and he's just bad. He's like, I don't know what it was, but I was in a rut. And every one of my improv- improvisations sounded exactly like what I had just done. He's like, and I couldn't get out of the rut. And I was starting to get really flustered by it and unsure of myself. And in one of those moments, Miles Davis leaned over and said, don't play the butter notes. He's like, so here I am at the keyboard, and now Miles Davis has said something. I have no idea what it means, but I know it must mean something because it's Miles Davis. Don't play the butter notes. What are the butter notes? And he says, I had no idea, but I'm quickly trying to figure out what could, what could butter notes, butter notes, bread and butter, basic. Oh, I'm playing all these notes with thirds and sevenths. And so I'm trapping myself. I'm predicting where I have to go next. What if I just drop the thirds and sevenths? And suddenly, a whole new world opens up for him. All because Miles Davis simply said something he couldn't quite make sense of. This is part of what it means to have the gift of tongues. To be filled with the Spirit is to learn how to speak to others in ways they can't quite make sense of, but it opens up possibilities for new ways of thinking. Part of what's killing us is that we're saying the same things over and over again, and when people don't understand us, we just say the same thing louder. Right? You've all been there in those moments that are, you know, little little more than racist, yeah, explicitly racist, where we're talking to someone who doesn't speak our language and we think if we just say it in English louder, somehow they'll get it, right? Or in an argument with your spouse in which you just keep insisting on the same thing, but you just, each time you're going up an octave and going up a few decibels, right? There's a way of trying to practice Christianity like that, that as if we could share Jesus with people if we just knew, had a larger megaphone, But what we need is the gift of tongues, which is to say things like, don't play the butter notes. And then people are like, whoa, what? What? 
One of my favorite examples of this is from Bishop Ed. He's talking, he, I've heard him share this story here before about a man who was struggling with his faith and saying that he didn't believe, and he, but he did love to be in nature, that there were moments when he was out taking a hike, climbing the mountains or whatever, that he, in nature, he would get a sense of transcendence. And so Bishop said to him, the next time you're there, the next time you come up on something that kind of takes your breath away, just ask it if it's God. Is this you? And sure enough, later, years later, I think, Bishop Ed gets a letter from the man saying that's exactly what had happened. He'd been out on a hike. He came around a turn. There's a beautiful vista. His heart lifted, and he just said, is this you? And God answered. That's a don't play the butter notes moment. And do you know what would happen in our families, in our cities, if Christians knew how to speak like that? The other story from Miles Davis is, this was earlier actually, when Herbie Hancock was trying out for the band, and Miles Davis was there, had a bunch of new musicians, he's trying to test them, and he's, he's like, we were all like, trying our best to impress Miles Davis, and he's like, it's, he just suddenly put his horn down and left. We had no idea what, what had happened, he just left. So we kind of looked at each other, and after a little while, we decided, well, we're here at Miles Davis's house, why don't we just play? And so they start playing. And they found out years later that Miles Davis had actually gone, he had an intercom system, and he had gone into this secret space to listen to them play without him present because he knew his presence was keeping them from being themselves. And this, this first of all, is what Jesus has done for us. If I go away, the comforter will come. But it's also what we have to learn to do for others. Like in this moment right now, what we need are not more Christians to stand up and be loud. We need Christians who know how to be absent in ways that create possibilities. We don't need more pressure on people. We need to know how to take the pressure off. We don't need to be the kinds of people who wear our faith on our sleeve. We need to be people whose hearts are eaten up with love for others, enough that we can keep our mouths shut and step back and let God do what only God can do, as we are doing what God has called us to do. So I'm going to come to this image. I'm sorry this is taking, I'm sorry, not sorry, this is taking so long. It's Pentecost Sunday. You've got you to have a long sermon. It's still not half as long as Gregory's, so just be thankful you weren't, you weren't in Rome in 591. Yesterday I was talking with Bishop Mike Owen. He was here with us for Father Robbie's ordination. And... I was talking with him about today, feeling the weight of it, and I'd talked to Bishop Ed before as well about how, how, what do I say today? How do I talk about these things under this weight, under this shadow? And Bishop Mike directed me to this image, which is an icon. It's called the Icon of Friendship. It shows Christ and, well, it's not there, right? It's going to be. I know that it's going to be at some point. Okay, there it is. I was going to make sure that I wasn't having a problem. So you can see Jesus with the, with the cruciformed halo and holding the, the bejeweled Bible. And then this is a martyr saint, Abbot Menace, who's standing beside Jesus. And Jesus has his arm around him. You can see Jesus' hand is up on his shoulder. It's an odd icon. This is in part because this is from the Coptic tradition. So this was made around the same time that Gregory preached that sermon. So this is a 6th century icon from Egypt, from the Coptic tradition. It shows Jesus and this saint. 
And it is obviously a mark of friendship. But I want you to just notice a couple of details. The first one is St. Minas is the one who's making the sign of blessing. So if you know anything about icons, in icons, Jesus is the one who makes the sign of blessing. Well, what's happened here is Jesus has put his arm around his friend, and now his friend is making the sign of blessing. And notice, the friend also has a scroll. He's holding the scroll. Jesus has the scriptures, but he has his own word. Something that has been entrusted to him to say. And you can, may or may not be able to make it out, but his feet are bare. He's, he has no sandals. And he's haloed. This is the mystery of Pentecost. The Spirit has come. And that means Jesus is here with his arm around you. You are meant to be the blessing. You have been given a word. You need to take off your shoes. You are the holy ground. Where you go, holiness goes. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. You are being entrusted to become the works of God. So that your words, your expressions, your listening, your nearness becomes the presence of the God who heals. And when you hear that, you'll know what he means when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. As you see all that's gone wrong, see it for what it is. Don't hide in the sand. See it for what it is. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus has his arm around you. You have become the providence of God. Amen.